Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cove. And on this episode, we have a singer, songwriter, producer, global superstar, and just one amazing, incredible artist, Miss Alicia Keys. What's up, Alicia? What's going on, Colby? How you feel? It's good. It's good to hear from you, man. It's good to just like uh, finally get a chance to just talk to you. And uh, what's great about the Backstory Podcast, and I actually had your husband on maybe like two, two or three years ago. So he's yeah. done this before. Is we li- we literally sort of go through your career and just like talk a little bit about you know how you got to this point where you are right now. And you have such an interesting background because you grew up in basically Hell's Kitchen, which is sort of like one of the toughest places to grow up in the world, in the largest city in America. And to experience that in the culture of New York City, I'm pretty sure you have a lot, a ton of stories on on the foundation of you as an artist. Definitely. No, for sure. I mean, the Hell's Kitchen, growing up in Hell's Kitchen was exactly how it sounds. <laughs> and I also grew up a lot. I did a lot of growing up in Harlem too. So it's definitely the cross connection of all that New York City energy that raised me for sure. And I love it. I mean, I love being of the fabric of New York. There's nothing like it. It's the best in the world. I know that it's given me so much to pull from artistically, musically, as a writer, as a woman, you know, as a claiming your space, understanding what type of boundaries you have to create and just having the vibe that I have, the energy that I have definitely came from New York raising me. I definitely have plenty of stories of crazy shit, um, but I love how it's made me be the artist that I am. I know for a fact that the way that I represent myself, I look, I talk, I speak, I sing, I, my whole energy was based out of that New York foundation. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful for all the pieces. I have a deep connection as well. I mean, my family is from New York City and I, um, I remember as a child, we used to always go to Times Square, which is right there to, you know, to go to the movies. And that's when it was just like super grimy. But I remember as a little kid and I was in my dad's car and it was the first time I saw prostitutes. I didn't understand why these women were walking around. And that was where the bus terminal was over there. And and it was just like all these women walking around. And the it was just authority. Like, yeah, it was such a weird, yeah, it was such a weird thing for a kid to see. But then again, the music and the energy of the city was just phenomenal. And it was just so much happening and and to see art come out of that and see an artist like you uh, come out of it. And, and, and let's just dig right into it. So you were like literally a kid in an environment and you really get an opportunity to start playing the piano and start collecting some experiences with music at a very young age. And I understand a neighbor gave you a piano when you were like 10 years old. So, you know, ill that you brought up that story about the first time that you saw what um, 
you know, what, what a woman could be forced to do or, or find herself in a position to do. I, I also remember, and that's when I say so many stories of New York City have definitely made me the woman I am too, because I remember we were in a, we were in a taxi, my mother and I, my mother raised me a single mother and we were in the taxi and we were going wherever we were going. We were driving down 10th Avenue and it was cold. I remember it was winter. And -hmm. if you know winters in New York, it is cold. It is not to be played with. We were right on 10th Avenue, which is right by the Hudson River. And the water makes it even frostier. Like there is no way that you're not frostbitten. Your fingers, your ears, your toes, everything like that is just, it is affected. And I do exactly remember looking out the window and I saw these women and they were standing there and they had very little clothes on, you know, small skirts and things like that. And I said, Ma, you know, what, what are they what are they doing there? How come they wear their coats? How come they don't have any coats on? And and sh- that was the first time that I was introduced to what a woman might have to do if, you know, to survive. And I remember that or if if abused and, you know, harmed in some capacity, obviously taken advantage of deeply. And um, I remember in that moment, I made like a pact to myself. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to really make sure that like, I'm not going to be treated like that, or I'm not going to let people take advantage of me like that or whatever the case. And I remember being a kid, like a little, a little girl. And, and that was, had a big effect on me when, the piano story, it was, um, yeah, I guess maybe I was, I mean, I started playing when I was seven. So I think it was right about then. It was like kind of a, a serendipitous moment. Um, there's no reason why I should have had a piano. There's no reason why it should have worked out in that way that it did. You know, my mother, as I said, single mother worked, you know, her ass off and it was hard for her. And my friend, a friend of hers, or it was like a, 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 you know, a person in the building that we lived in, they happened to be moving and they happened to have a piano. And so they were like, you know, we can't take this piano with us. Could y'all use it? And that was literally like, I mean, people say, did you have a, did you have a, what was your first break or something like that? Mm-hmm. And um, I definitely know that that was my first big break. My first big break was getting that piano because I really, there's no way I would have had a piano, none. And um, it was an old player piano. The player piano like used to be, was created in kind of the 20s and the 30s and like picture saloons and like the literally like where they had the big roll of paper inside of it and you no one would have to sit there and it could play itself that was the that was the body of the piano was this wooden you know brown wooden piano and obviously it didn't have the paper anymore in it in it anymore and it couldn't be played without anybody playing it, but that was like the history of that particular piano. That was my first one. And it became the divider between my bedroom and the living room. Cause if you know, you know, everybody probably who grew up in small apartments or small houses, like it was just one bedroom. And so I had to sleep in the living room and the piano became the wall between the living room and my like little tiny corner of the living room, which I called my bedroom. And it was kind of amazing, you know, to be able to have that. So that, that was my first connection with music and being able to explore what was possible for me.
And then you saw the movie Philadelphia in the early 90s. What was it about that movie that gave you a creative spark? Man, you did your research. Philadelphia, man, it's it's definitely one of my favorite movies. I, I guess it was kind of another one of those moments that I don't know if you know that it's coming for you. And I was probably, you know, about 13, 12, 12, 13. I, no, I was 11. I was 11. And I lost my grandfather. He he died. And, you know, it's kind of my first big loss. And I didn't know how to, you know, it was, it was just, you don't know how to deal with how that feeling feels, that, that yeah. loss and that emptiness. And, and so, um, I just remember that I guess my mother and I, she was like, wanted to take me to the movies or it was just a hard time and difficult. So she took me to the movies and we, I remember we went to a late movie, like late, you know, on 42nd street, there was always these like late, late movies. And um, we, I don't know, maybe it's nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, it was like that. And so we watched Philadelphia and Philadelphia was basically about this Tom Hanks character and he was dying. He was dying from AIDS. And it was kind of crazy to parallel between watching somebody, you know, come to terms with their death and, and just having lost somebody so close to you. And it was so, it shook me to my core. It was so, so emotional. Like I felt so connected to that character and I felt so connected to the loss that I was feeling and it it was like it couldn't have been any better that 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 understanding but yet the pain and the the emotions and I just cried I just cried and I think I needed to cry so much because that you just need to get it out and I remember I was so emotionally taken that it was that night that I went home and it had to be 12 it had to be one something late we walked home and we got into the house and on that player piano I sat down and I wrote my first song ever wow. I didn't know how to write a song I never had been taught how to write a song I didn't know what to do but I felt something so powerful that I couldn't ignore it I couldn't sleep I couldn't do anything but get it out and I sat there and I wrote my first song and that was the beginning for me to really understand how the piano and songwriting and expressing your emotions could really lead you to something beautiful like even through the pain McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. So you end up uh, in a group at 13 and out of this group, you were encouraged to go solo. And at like 15 years old, 
Columbia Records, which is an iconic label. I mean, we all know what the label is. And and growing up at that time, just you always look toward the big labels where all the big artists were at. And they come at you and they're really recruiting you and they offer you a white baby grand piano and they really wanted to sign you. What did that feel like at 15 years old? It was literally the most crazy feeling ever. I remember they took me into, you know, you know, I know this now, but you know, I didn't know this then I was a kid and I was not in any way experienced with the world of basically corporate manipulation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, and so, you know, when they ready to wine and dine you and they want to convince you to do what they want you to do, they pull out all the stops and you can imagine I'm 15, you know, straight off the streets of Harlem and house kitchen. I like, you know, man, I mean, there's, I've never stepped foot in uh, that fancy of a restaurant or a hotel or whatever. It wasn't like that, you know, that's where I lived. I didn't have to stay in a hotel or a restaurant or whatever. And they took me up to like the 50 something floor of whatever high rise building. On, uh, on, 50, on 57th Street? It, it was on 57th Street. Yep. yep. And it was like the whatever the floor was, it was the highest I ever been in my life. And it was all the way at the top. You walked out of the elevator, marble floors, marble walls. It looked like all glass. It looked like out of a dream I never even dreamt before. I could, I didn't know what to do, where I was. They brought me into this room, white marble floors. The windows looked out on the entire, you know, Central Park and all of the Madison Avenue, every huge building, New York City at its finest. And boom, in the corner was a white grand piano. I never saw anything so beautiful. I'd never been in a place so beautiful. You could eat off the floors. I was like, where am I and what's happening? I go in there and, you know, all the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest heads of all the sides of Columbia were there. And everybody was like just ready for 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 to, to, they just knew they had it in the bag, which as far as I was concerned, they did. I was like, this yeah. is amazing. Um, and so they, they asked me to play for them. So I played piano. I played my songs that I'd written at the time. And on that white baby grand piano, they're all excited. And the first thing they say is, Alicia, if you sign with Columbia, you know, you can have that white baby grand right there. And when I wow. tell you, I thought I hit the jackpot. I was like, this is the most amazing thing I could ever have at the time. That was the most beautiful thing I would have ever owned, you know? And so to me, that was everything. But you see how cats get you. You see how they used to do that with artists and give them the Cadillac and uh, the car and all this shit. And you think you're coming up with something and you're not. But you don't know that at the time. (laughs) And so, of course, uh, my manager at the time, he was like, we are not signing this deal for no damn baby grand piano. No. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They got to they got to come with a little bit more. But (laughs) what else I learned about you were was that like you you were very first of all 15 years old like you i mean you doesn't you really don't know anything at 15 years old but you were so smart that you ended up getting a scholarship to Columbia University which is very prestigious so you get a chance to go to Columbia you finish high school early and you sign a record deal with Columbia i mean i, I don't even know how you were even fathoming all of that in that moment and you know i did i graduated at 16 and um, I graduated valedictorian at that, and I was accepted to Columbia University. Um, and I, I thought it was a sign of all signs. I was like, man, if I'm if I'm accepted to Columbia University, 
and I got signed to Columbia Records. Like, you can't tell me that's not a sign. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> like, this is about to be the best ever. You know, this is crazy. La, 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 la. Obviously, I started to do the school thing. I'm 16. I'm trying to jump into the college thing at the same time, simultaneously, as I'm, you know, trying to figure out how do you make a record? How do you create timeless music? How do you create songs? How do you, you know, put it all together? I had no idea of either. And it was like a catastrophe. I would get the, I would get the, you know, these assignments to read the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer, like the most, you know, the most complicated texts ever. And I would be on the train from, you know, 42nd to 116th trying to read my homework and figure out how, when I was going to go into the studio and I'd try to make my schedule then to make it make sense. It didn't make any sense. I was tired on the train. I was falling asleep in class. I was trying to write songs. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. They sounded like not that great. I was stressed. There was, I didn't know what I was doing, but I definitely thought it was a sign at the time. And it was a bit of a gift and a curse because you signed to Columbia, but you also are just associated with a label of, uh, and a group of people at a label that didn't really understand who you were as an artist and you weren't really comfortable. It, it was just a lot of politics that were going on and it really puts you in a rough spot as a first time uh, artist signing to a label and you got all these grown people that are trying to change your image and they don't like the songs that you're writing and they want you to be sort of like other artists and that's just not who you who you were. And so that was a that was a heavy blanket of energy to be wearing at such a young age. It definitely was. Um, you know, it's frustrating because you, first of all, are a baby and you definitely don't have any experience. But I also, although I was super young, I also was very, very confident and I definitely had a sense of who I was and what I wanted to do. And, you know, the reason why we got signed was because we had a pretty incredible bidding war based on the fact that, you know, I was my own musician, my own artist, my own writer of the songs, even at 15 and 16, you know, and I've carried that with me all the way through. And and so it was definitely a special situation. And, and you know, they knew I was special, but they just didn't know what the hell to do with me at the time. They, um, you know, at the time, all pretty much every girl that was an artist had like some big, huge ball gown on and like, you know, was all about like a fairy princess looking type of artist. You know, it was like kind of, mm-hmm. it was the, the the era of very big voices. It was Mariah Carey's and Whitney Houston's. And, you know, it was like really quite elegant and everything was very fancy. <laughs> and And for me, I just wanted to be the girl that I was, that girl who grew up on those Harlem streets and Hell's Kitchen streets. And I didn't want to leather jackets, Tim's and, you know, just braids. That was my vibe. And so I didn't want to do that. Although I, I like those artists, too. I didn't want to be that type of artist, you know, and they just didn't know what to do. It definitely was a little bit on the it was on the precipice of you know Lauren Hill she was starting to really get some vibe and i think that was amazing she was a big inspiration for me as a as a unique woman and who was a writer and a, you know could had so much different different diversity to her and i think Mary too was a big inspiration for me as well where it was like you could start to see a girl who looked like me like she had that 
more street energy and she had that New York vibe. And so those two women were really more of the distinction that I was, that was natural to me. But Columbia at the time, they just, they didn't know my songs were very soulful. They mixed hip hop and, and soul music. And it like, it, I was playing the piano, I had braids, I had Tim's. They were like, what to do with you? I don't, I just don't know. Who are you? So um, they just didn't really know what to do. And then there was a lot of shakeups at the label, which happens all the time. So the people who brought me in, you know, weren't really there the way that they would have been if they were able to stay and blah, 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 blah. And we found ourselves in a place where they didn't like my music. They didn't like the music I was creating. But, you know, these labels, they're not in the business of selling. So they kind of made a commitment and they would just rather sit me on a shelf and just let me sit. So Which that happens was so many artists. I mean, so many artists are, are put on that shelf and never to be heard again. And, so and you were sad. so young. But somehow you were able to meet Clive Davis and get out of your deal and, and end up signing with Arista, which is really unusual. That doesn't necessarily happen. So you definitely had divine energy around you. And Clive mm. Davis, probably the perfect person to connect with you because he is an artist, you know, savant. Like he understands an artist. He understands creative freedom and energy. And he allows you to do what you want to do. So that must have been awesome to just be like, man, I'm, I'm with the Clive Davis at, you know, 16, 17 years old. I mean, you know, absolutely. I didn't even, you know, it is, it is divine. There is divinity, I feel, in everything that we all do, whether we know it or not. And the person who actually originally was helping me find my way through, which is actually what kind of brought me to Columbia, Peter Edge and Jeff Robinson, Peter ended up working with Clive. And that was kind of how we ended up back in that space after we worked really hard to figure out how to find a way to get off of the label that wasn't really understanding the vision. Yeah. And and so meeting Clive and for him really recognizing who I was as an artist, as a songwriter. And this was my potential. He didn't, you know, of course I had song, I had some songs. I, I had songs that he could hear. They were fallen, existed, you know, at that time. So he got a chance to hear like what I was creating and what I was capable of. But, you know, he didn't know. Nobody actually knows. I didn't even know. And so, um, and so, that was where we, he actually was the one that stepped in and, and bought me out of that contract, which was hard as hell. Cause like I said, they didn't, they didn't want to do that, but you know, he, he got, he gave them their money back and they said, well, you know, whatever, we don't really get it anyway. It's too bad for them. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. 
Well, in a serious twist of fate, and a lot of people don't know this story, I don't remember this story, you know, Clive Davis has been tremendously successful. I mean, we're talking over, you know, 50, 60 years in a business. I mean, the documentary that they have on him is just phenomenal just to learn his backstory. But he had to deal with similar stuff that you had to deal with with Columbia. While he was at Arista, there were forces at Arista that pushed him out, even though he was like tremendously successful. And the artist kind of revolted. And out of that moment, he then creates J Records and he takes you with him over to J Records to really launch your career. But that must have been a lot for you as well after what you had been through with Columbia than to see what happened with Clive. The craziest part was that, like, that's exactly right. Like, here I was and, you know, I know that Jeff worked really hard to, to really find a way out. That was a hard, hard thing. Like, you don't get out. That's the nope. thing. You you don't get out. So that was for sure destiny and obviously the what was meant to be for me. And and that that is exactly right that when we were then with Clive and we had this opportunity and he was able to help to assist for us to be out of that deal. And then we're, we're with him and we're like, okay, we're good, we're good. Aris to Aris to boom, now he's going. So I just came from a place where I lost kind of all of the, the, the people who were rooting for me, like a, you know, like a Michael Malden, who was like a big, big reason why I ended up at, at um, Columbia and was a big mm -hmm. advocate for me. And and then here I come over to Clive and boom, I felt like I was about to lose that. And I said, what is happening? Like, what is happening? And I definitely was worried about it, stressed about it, frustrated about it for sure. But there was some little voice in my head and it said, it was like, this wouldn't be happening to you unless it's meant to give you a story to tell. And for some crazy reason, I was very clear about that. Like I, I knew, even though, trust me, it wasn't, it was, it was not easy. It was totally crazy. It was uncertain. And there was no reason why it actually worked out. But inside, I knew there was a reason why this was happening. I knew it. And so I kept going and I kept the belief. And I remember that I had the chance to stay with Arista or end up going following Clive over to Jay. And and I know that financially it was a smarter move for me to stay at Arista. And I remember telling my manager at the time, no, I'm not doing that. We have to go with Clive. He's the one that we're even, you know, why we're even out of that of the situation. We have to, you know, we have to stay with him. Like that's the right thing to do. And, you know, he kind of threw his arms up like, all right. Cause he knew the business. You, yeah. not, there's no loyalty technically in the business, you know? Yeah. So, and, and, and he understood, look, you get what you can get while you can get it. And that's the smartest thing you can do. And in a lot of ways he was, he was right. But in this case, I was definitely right. And, and that was a, that was a big chance that I took on him. But the reason why I didn't know this at the time, I was still a kid, 16, 17. But the reason why it was in my best interest is because Clive also had everything to lose. He was going to start a whole new situation and people doubted him completely. Yeah. And here I was, you know, the chance to, my, I also had nothing to lose. I, I, I had, I had, nothing to lose. And I had to create an opportunity for me any way possible. So we both could not lose. And that is what made us both win. But I never knew that. I didn't really understand that. But now looking back on it, that's why it really was divine.
Oh man, it was just, and it was artists revolted and came to his aid, which never really happens. And the fact that they opened up that door for him to do J records, they kind of threw him to the side. And then he, he, you know, you release your, your album a, a year or so later, uh, songs in eight minor, we get girlfriend. That's like our first, like, uh, Alicia Keys, like, Oh, this is, this is okay. What is this? And then you hit us with fallen you release your album in June of 2001. It debuts number one. You sell 236,000 copies first week. I mean, it ends up, you know, selling, you know, millions and millions and millions of records. Like, that has to be mind-blowing after everything you went through to have a debut album like that and become a star. Uh, Mind-blowing was for sure an understatement. I mean, you know, songs in A minor is diamond. I mean, it's like, it's crazy how explosive that album was and is. I mean, look, I just told you I'm about to start my very first Latin American tour. Tomorrow I started in Rio and guaranteed when I open my mouth and I sing those first songs of Fallen, it is thunderous. And it's just crazy how all these years later, these songs, they like, you know, they just continue to have a life and evolve and touch people and move people. But yes, so for it to for it to debut in that capacity, when obviously nobody knows what's going to happen, you never know. There's no reason for something to, by the way, Fallen was the song that everybody said, don't do it. What you gonna do with that song? I mean, they, it, we had to fight radio and I'm sure we had to fight you to play it too because it was so anti, it wasn't of the time. You know right. what I mean? It, it, it didn't different. fit into any format. It didn't, it didn't fit anywhere. And that was what actually made it stand out. Obviously we know that now, but to get people to believe in it and go for it. I mean, I was 18 years old at this point, by the time everything kind of came together, 17, 18 years old. And the record, if you play it, kind of could have been like a 40 year old gospel or you don't know what that song is like. Right. But when you finally saw me in front, when you saw me, in your face at the piano with my braids and my, you know, my Tims and my energy singing that soulful song, that's when it made sense. You had to see me first, but it was it was crazy. I mean, it took a lot of people to take a chance on me to make that song become what it is, yourself included. You know, that's the reason why, you know, obviously it's a great song and when people hear it, they love it and they can feel it, but it takes people taking a chance on something different. That really is the reason why that song, I can play it tomorrow and it's going to, it's going to light people's life up. Yeah, it was timeless. But the irony of this was you had a bunch of people that didn't believe in you that were trying to tell you that your music didn't make sense. And yet you finally get the platform to release your music and it is a global success. I mean, most people in record companies don't even have the experience to have an artist like you to go 12 million first album and have so much uh, international success out the gate. And so it, it definitely had to be fulfilling. I mean, when we ever, when we eventually get the Alicia Keys movie, I can't wait to see all this play out on, on screen. <laughs> so then you have that period in between your first and your second album, which for a lot of artists, it's like, oh, my God, I got I, I had such a massive first album. I got to come with this second album and you drop on us a single you don't know my name which at the time was just one of those things the first time you hear it you would it stops you in your tracks and then you did this mm. 
amazing video and you set us up uh that that fall for your second album but talk a little bit about that in between time between the first and the second album and did you feel like an overwhelming pressure to top the first album First of all, Kobe, to get through, I don't know how much of this you're trying to go through because we're going to need at least two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine series to get through all of this. All of this we're going to talk about. Um, man, did I feel pressure? Of course. I mean, I felt like an imposter. I felt like, you know, I had no idea what I was even doing in these places. You know, it was like, what was I doing here? How was I at the Grammy Awards? How was I taking home all these things? I didn't even know it was, obviously I worked so hard to make it possible and I have always been a hard worker and I definitely had so many disappointments and so many chances for it to not go right. But here it was going right. And I had no idea what to do about it. I was definitely terrified. I felt like, how am I supposed to make that happen again? All of a sudden, I was in, introduced to this idea of you spend your life, everybody doubts you, and then everybody loves you. Then they expect you to do what they expect you to do. But you don't, what is that? What's that supposed to look like? So it was definitely a lot to try to figure out. But the most important thing I think for me was that I always have been a pure person and I've always been a genuine person. And I definitely just knew I love music. I love it the same way today as I do then. And and I so I just went in and started to make music. You know what I mean? And and I think I, I did a good job as to not getting too crazy in the head about it you know, and just like lock away and just, just create and create, uh, allow it to lead you. And so it did, you know, it ended up being, you don't know my, know my name, which was another outlier that again, defied the odds. You did fine. Uh, you had another <laughs> number one debut album, which doesn't happen. And then you sell 618,000 copies the first week. And I'm bringing this up now because we're in a much different place now, how music operates now. And so right. when you hear these numbers, it's like, that happened? Yeah, that used to happen. You used right. to really, literally, people would run to the record store <laughs> to buy your music when you're, and they would stand in line at midnight. Remember all of that? And and now it's like, oh, it's just Crazy. on your phone. It still drops at midnight, though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. It just still drops at midnight. But you give us, you don't know my name, which was massive. If I ain't got you, which was massive and diary. So you you just kill us with these three unique sounding songs. And of course, the album, you know, does just as good as your debut album. And you're literally like superstar status and and just, you know, torn all over the world. And it, it was definitely life changing um, for you, I'm sure. I mean, I got to say, if a diary album was like for sure, you know, the one thing that was different was that you have your whole life to make your first album, but that second album, everybody had their hands that they uh, their the eyes on. They watch like, um, when is this dropping? Because you're gonna need to hurry up. So that was definitely a, a another level of pressure that was on it. But it was so incredible to be able to have, to, to have found my way to those those songs to have made connections with, you know, 
amazing creative people that we were able to create together with like Kanye when we did You Don't Know My Name and when we did Unbreakable and these songs that we worked on together. And and obviously If I Ain't Got You is, is just like, like my heartbeat. That song is just like really, really. So yeah, I mean, it was definitely unexpected, totally unimaginable. And um, to this day, I'm just like, wow. What did we do? We, we, we did something that was really special. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Again, we, we just need the Alicia Keys movie so we can like see it all like in, in the big screen because it's just an amazing story. So then a couple years later, uh, you approach Clive Davis because you wanted to produce a song. You had an idea for Whitney Houston. It ends up being her last single. And it is one of my favorite songs like and I love I love Whitney Houston, but Million Dollar Bill is such a great like I guess it's an ode to that New York City R&B movement of the the Mm -hmm. 70s and 80s. But you and Swiss come together and deliver her last single. Wow. I know that was so crazy. Obviously, um, it, it to. It was so incredible to meet her. You know, she was a, a sister to me for sure. And, and you know, when we first met, it was, I'll never forget, it was at Clive Davis's Grammy party and she just shredded over to me. And I was still, you know, in that place where I was kind of like, it was still like an alien universe that I was yeah. just like visiting from time to time. And I still feel like that, to be honest, but particularly there, that was exactly uh, how I felt. She was like, you are going to write a song for me. <laughs> and I'll never forget it. Could you imagine like being approached by Whitney Houston and that's what she says to you? And I was like, oh shit, that's Whitney Houston. She just, and I was tripping. So it was definitely crazy and and I wanted I wanted to do that but it's like where do you even start fast forward some years you know some years passed by and we were able to connect on a few different levels and we started to build as as more like sisters and friends and and Swiss and I we came up with this idea we were like exploring the South Soul era exactly right yeah and and so we came up with this idea and it just felt right we wrote it in the studio and and we sent it over and we were like we think this is the song for her and and who would imagine that that this song 
um, would be her, you know, her last single that we were able to have the honor to write that. I was able to, I, I vocal produced her entirely for that song. It was like me and her, that whole space. It was a, my great honor to be able to like give her the energy and the vibe and just, just exactly what I think she was looking for from me, you know, which was a sisterhood, you know, and we, she, she would meet me on tour and she would come visit me in Germany and London and nobody else was with me. Tour is a lonely place and she would come hang out with me and we watch movies and like it was a real, real beautiful thing. And, you know, this song was kind of like one of the culminations of that piece. Around that same time, you grew up in New York City and you develop a song with Jay-Z that becomes sort of an anthem for your hometown. And we, you know, we all know about Frank Sinatra, New York, New York. <laughs> and there was never really another song that was sort of an anthem and then you get with Hove, two New York icons in, in hip-hop and R&B, and you make Empire State of Mind. Did you even have any idea how big that record was going to be? No, we both didn't. We both didn't even have a clue. I mean, man, the record almost didn't get made, which is even crazier because, you know, Jay had this idea and he was trying to contact me. And, and the way that it just worked out, it kind of didn't. It just wasn't getting over the line and you know could you imagine that empire state of mind never got made with me and jay could you imagine like that's no. crazy me neither but you know it ended up working out and it even had its own set of hurdles the first time that i recorded it I was sick and I was like, but he has a deadline. I got to get it done. So I was like in LA or something and I put the vocals together and I sent it back to him and he was like, you think you could do it again? And I was like, what? After I worked all that hard to try to make it, you want me to do it again? Sure enough, I was definitely congested and I was like, all right, all right, let me, let me give it one more shot. I took it back home to New York and, and that's where the magic happens. So, you know, sometimes you got to work hard for things, but I definitely know that even he was like, you know, I, he was like, you think it could be too New York? And I was like, yep, it's definitely too New York. <laughs> but little did we know that the metaphor of what it means, this idea of hope and faith and possibility and dreams and all that is like what everybody feels. And and so even though it was such, it's such an ode and such an anthem for New York, it's really an anthem for the world for that, that idea of not stopping until, you know, not stopping your dreams, no matter what anybody says, which I think is a theme of my life and definitely a theme of probably the majority of people that end up getting anywhere. It's not because no one ever tried to stop them. It's not because things wasn't hard. It's that they never let other people's opinions stop them from these dreams. Well, again, another timeless record. And uh, my, I remember my daughter was probably like four when that came out. And she <laughs> called it the neighborhood song. Like, because hey. he, he was talking about all of the different parts of the city. And, you know, she <laughs> would go visit her grandparents in New York City. And she would just like, oh, that's the neighborhood song. And it's and I and now that you're going on tour, I am going to take her to, to your show when it comes here to Washington, D.C., where I live at, because I, I was I told her, like, you don't you have to experience an Alicia Keys show. And we're looking forward to seeing you on tour and you're, you're doing this big world tour. And I just wanted to thank you for taking the time in between your practice runs for your tour to uh, get on the Backstory podcast. 
Man, listen, I wish we could talk for another three hours because I love how you're putting it together. I love the questions and the way that you run it through. It just means we're going to need a part two. You know what I mean? This is, sure, this, is a, this is a part one. I definitely want to thank you for having me on your show. I love the vibe. I love the way that you get into people's, you know, backstory. It's pretty fresh. And thank you for um, being a part of 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 this journey it's it's really a blessing and you can't do it alone so i really appreciate that i definitely holding you to it for you and your daughter to come see this show keys to the summer tour is about to be so so crazy and that's definitely happening this summer it's going to be so much fun first 360 show ever is going to be in the middle of the whole arena it's going to oh, be wow. out of this world it's going to be really really sick so um it's going to be so much fun but man thank you too and i really really appreciate you super blessings and let's make sure we do part two for sure thanks alicia big love Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, inspiration icon, Kirk Franklin. I think for me, the greatest miracle, and I say this with a much soberness, is I think the greatest miracle is to be at 53 here talking about releasing another song. And my first album came out when I was 23. The Backstory Podcast with Kobe Kolb is an Urban One Incorporated, Reach Media, Pod is Good production, hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Kobe Kolb. Edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC. On Instagram, get the backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed. For sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.